So a, a boy met up with his father after Sunday school, and his, his dad said, well, son, what, what did you learn from the Bible today? He said, we learned about Moses and the Red Sea. Oh, really? Well, tell me about it, Dad said. Well, Dad, they were being chased by Pharaoh's army until they were backed up against the sea. Yeah, go on. But just when all seemed hopeless, the Navy launched F-18 Super Hornets from aircraft carriers on the sea and, and blew Pharaoh's chariots away. Then the Marines stormed the beach and they carried the Israelites across the sea while Apache helicopters offered cover fire. And meanwhile, the Air Force sent out its stealth bombers and they flew right under Pharaoh's radar. And, and his dad said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Son, is that what they told you? He said, well, no, but if I told you what they told me, you'd never believe it. <laughs> this is one of those stories. You would never believe it were it not in the scriptures. This is one of those stories, and we'll talk more about this in just a moment, but it's one of those stories that you have to believe it because it's in the scriptures, that the greatest proof of this event actually taking place is it's in God's word. And I love that because it forces us to deal with it, to deal with what would seem to be impossible. But remember, it was either last week or a couple weeks ago that I said, if God created the heavens and the earth, there's nothing impossible after that. All things are doable. All things are possible. So with that in mind, Joshua chapter 10, we're gonna do 10, 11, and 12 tonight. I wanna encourage you ahead of time. You're not gonna be here till midnight. Chapter 12 is a list, and we're basically gonna hit it at the very end, and we'll just run the list and make a couple of comments and be done. So, so don't worry, we're gonna spend most of our time right here actually in chapter 10. Verse one, now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured, captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I and all its men were mighty. See, that's something new that we didn't know about Gibeon before. This is a mighty city, mighty fighting men who were wise enough to make a covenant of peace with Joshua, yeah, they did it underhandedly, they did it by deception, we talked about that on Sunday, but what choice did they have? They didn't know the truth, they didn't know who God really was. And so this covenant was struck, and, and now the Gibeonites are on the side of the Israelites. Therefore, verse three, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Yarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. Adonai Zedek is the king of Jerusalem at this time, and he fears Israel's heightened advantage. As I said, because Gibeon is now joined up, so not only with the Gibeonites are they, do they have advantage in terms of numbers, 
but they also have a high ground. Gabeon is a high-grounded city, very difficult to attack because of its location in the mountains there near Jerusalem, very mountainous area in Israel. And so Israel now, because of their covenant with the Gibeonites, they have a new staging ground for their battle. Gilgal is down in the valley, down near the Dead Sea, down in the low ground. Every battle coming out of Gilgal, where Israel was encamped, would be an uphill fight, as we'll see them go uphill this evening. But the Gibeonites and Gabeon, that's a great place to launch from. And so Joshua and Israel are now about to be drawn into their biggest war yet. Verse 6. Then the men of Gabeon, they sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants and come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Verse seven, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. Here's how it happened, verse eight. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands and not one of them shall stand before you. Okay, six quick notes just to rattle off right here at the beginning. Number one, Joshua is clearly communicating with the Lord before going up. So there's talk going on between them. He is now able to hear from the Lord, verse 8 tells us, and that's a good thing because it wasn't so good with I, right, as they tried to go up that way, and, and it wasn't so good when they met the Gibeonites in the first place and were deceived because no one asked the Lord at that point. No one checked in, should we make this covenant? So twice now Joshua has either been deceived or defeated, and now he's in communication with the Lord, and he hears from the Lord, Second thing, note that Joshua comes to the aid of the Gibeonites because he was bound by covenant. So that's across the board. The Gibeonites are now going to be to Joshua almost as the Israelites. I mean, they're, they're gonna be ministers, servants of the tabernacle, later the temple. But they are now under the protection of Israel and Joshua will keep his covenant. Number three, while the last Five battles weren't easy. They all came one at a time. The battle against the Amalekites in the Valley of Rephidim, the battle at Heshbon, the battle at Bashan, battle of Jericho, the battle of Ai. All five of these battles were single wars against single armies. But now Joshua and the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, are gonna go up against five armies all at one time. This is a much bigger battle than we have seen yet in the travels of Israel and in the Israelites coming into the land. But check this out, number four. It will not only advance, but it will accelerate Israel's possession of the land. And this is an interesting thought. Instead of five separate battles, one at a time and then back to Gilgal, and then another one and then back to Gilgal, and then another one and then back to Gilgal, which has been the pattern so far, this is gonna be one big, decisive war across one very long, difficult day. When your battle seems overwhelming, it may simply be God's economy. Meaning what? Meaning that you're being hit all at once because the Lord is allowing the consolidation of spiritual battles rather than a bunch of separate battles fought over a long period of time. And by the way, those, those individual separate battles can wear down the saints. That's a tactic of the enemy. 
He will sometimes just attack, just nip at your heels just to make you tired and keep coming and then pull back and then come and then pull back and come and then wait for an opportune time. But then there are those times where the battle is massive and it's overwhelming and his followers were going, Lord, I can't deal with this. I can't handle this. What am I supposed to do with this? And it's not until we get to the other side of the battle, the long day that we realize that he's consolidated and we have made major advances, that we have accelerated in faith and the kingdom. The big battles have their purpose as well. And I think that's a marvelous thing because by the time of this day's end, Joshua and the children of Israel will be five nations closer to owning the promised land. In fact, by the end of a week or so, they will have taken out the middle and the entire southern area of Israel and be ready to set their sights to the north. God is moving in a big way. Either way, whether it's little battles, little nipping at the heel, little you know, darts that are shot across the bow by the enemy or big, massive, how can I possibly make it through this wars? Either way, Zephaniah 3.17 reminds us, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love, or some translations say he will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The Lord your God is in your midst. As Joshua was told by the Lord in chapter one, verse nine, do you remember this? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Little war, little battles, big wars. God is there. Number five, as we saw last week, the encouragement of the Lord precedes the battle. Before they go up, the Lord speaks to Joshua. I've given this one to you. You're already victorious. You've won, in essence. You gotta go fight, but this one is yours. It's in the bag. It is done. Do not fear them. I've given them into your hands. Not one of them will stand before you. Listen to Psalm 35. In fact, always listen. When you feel like you're heading into battle or going up to battle, the Lord gives encouragement before the battle. He says in Psalm 35, David is writing, he says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your Yeshua. I am your salvation. I'm your Joshua. <laughs> Let those be ashamed who dishonored and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them like, be like chaff before the wind. And then he says, with the angel of the Lord driving them on. The angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh in the Hebrew. When we see this in the Hebrew scriptures, this is Jesus. This is a Christophany of the hand of the Lord, of Jesus pre-incarnate, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares. Let the net which he hid catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. But note that David is not shouting this at the enemy. He is praying this to the Lord. 
He's taking it to the Lord and asking the Lord to be his very salvation. My soul, verse 9, shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his Yeshua, in his salvation. So David turns to the Lord as the battles approach because he knows he needs the encouragement of God before the battle. We talked about that last week. Finally, number six, note the opposition leader to Joshua and the children of Israel, and yes, even the, the Gibeonites. It's Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Interesting guy, Adonai Zedek. We hear about him only here in Joshua chapter 10. But he is a stunning contrast to another Zedek. This is not the Zedek family. Okay, there's Adonai Zedek, which means the Lord of righteousness. It's a title. 400 years earlier, Abram met a king of Salem, which is now Jerusalem, but it was first called Salem. He met a king named Melchizedek, which is king of righteousness. King of righteousness, who's also the king of Jerusalem at the time, king of righteousness, king of Salem, peace. And it's a fascinating study to think about Melchizedek, Genesis 14, compare that to Hebrews chapter seven, not gonna do it right now. I will do it, by the way. We're gonna talk about the contrast of Melchizedek, another, I believe, Christophany, a picture of Jesus, and Adonai Zedek, who is a picture of another king, a usurping king, who at this point is king of Jerusalem. Bible students, Salem means peace. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it literally translates teacher of peace or teaching of peace which is really ironic because Jerusalem's been destroyed and waylaid 35 times. And completely, when I say destroyed, I mean decimated, flattened, and then a new city built on top of it, and flattened, and a new city built on top of it. If you want to go and be an archaeological digger, Jerusalem's the place to do it, because the further down you go, the more you find. It's interesting to me when we go, because we walk the Via Dolorosa, in Jerusalem, and, and many people find it very moving. And even there on the walls in Jerusalem, they have, they have little plaques showing the Catholic stations of the cross. And the irony, is, and, and people will take their shoes off and walk barefoot along the Via Dolorosa. Well, the irony is the true Via Dolorosa is about 20 feet down. We're just walking above that. There, there is first century streeting or pavement there in Jerusalem that we do get to walk on because they've dug down to it. So we know where the Herodian level is, the Herodian streets. But all that to say, it's interesting. Jerusalem, teacher of peace, and yet it's been destroyed, it's been ravished, it's been terrorized, it's almost entire existence. And it really is a teacher of peace, how not to have it, and how one day it will have it. But Adonai Zedek, this this curious king set against Israel, Melchizedek, who comes to Abram. Oh, I, I gotta stop myself because I'm just gonna start doing it right now. The contrast between these two kings is fascinating, it's instructive, and it's prophetic. And we're gonna do a teaching at the end of Joshua. I'm gonna do a prophecy through Joshua. We're just gonna take all 24 chapters in one sitting and look at every prophecy, every prophetic picture, and, and I'll save it for then. Uh, verse nine, Joshua chapter 10, verse nine Continuing says, and the Lord confounded them, that's these five kings and their armies, confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, 
and pursued them by way of the ascent of Bet-Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Now listen, again, Gilgal, where Israel came from, is way down south, or east actually, but way down by, by the Dead Sea, by the Jordan River, in the Jordan River Valley. And then Gibeon, where the battle takes place, is way up on the hill. It's a very, I said on Sunday, I believe it's a 12 to 15 mile journey, but it's a tough one. It's 12 to 15 miles in an uphill, mountainous march. Gilgal, 781 feet below sea level. Gabeon, 2,400 feet above sea level. So there's your distance right there. And what happens next is absolutely a supernatural intervention. As Israel climbs and comes up to Gabeon for the war, they've got to be worn out. All those switchbacks and through the mountains, verse 10, or verse 11, it says, and they, as they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Bet-Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven. Stones there, it's abanim is the Hebrew word, and it's the same word translated in a moment, hailstones. He threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. More who died from the hailstones, there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. God is lobbing massive hailstones on the heads of these five kings and their armies. He is just pummeling them, and he's taking them out all the way down. Note this to Azekah, which means dug over. And truly they were just dug over by these massive hailstones falling from heaven, and I think it's awesome. I mean, I'm one, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, when I'm watching the Lord of the Rings and Gimli takes out his battle axe and lops off the head of an orc, I'm like, yes, that is so cool. You know, when all the evil and, and, and the vile is coming up against those who are a picture in Tolkien's writings of, of goodness and right, and they just get slaughtered, I'm like, yes, bring the slaughter on. And you may think I'm bloodthirsty. I'm not, but those orcs are ugly. <laughs> and they're evil, and they're wicked, and they are on the side of evil, and they are opposed to anything good. And that's the picture here. Don't forget, that's the picture. And in fact, it's even proven by the Lord's judgment, which may seem severe. It may seem harsh. Hold on to that thought. Let me answer the question, why hailstones? Why not just zap him with one massive lightning strike and be done with it? He's chucking hailstones. The Lord is from the heavens on the heads of these people as they're fleeing and running and dying. Why hailstones? Leviticus 24, 16 tells us, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. Stoning is God's righteous punishment for blasphemy. So God stoned him. It's what he did. Jesus comes along and later amends the law, the stoning law. He, he says in Matthew 12, 31, he says, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. So it's really not an amendment as much as an addendum to the original law. It's still blasphemy against God is unforgivable. 
He says in Matthew 12, 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And it's fascinating to me. Jesus, for a moment, steps back and says, even if you speak something against me, the Son of Man, I'm gonna forgive you for it. Why? Because Jesus understands in his first coming, there would be many who would blaspheme him because they really didn't know who he was. They didn't yet understand. So you see the mercy of God and the absolute justice and fairness of God where Jesus says, it's gonna be forgiven you, those who would blaspheme the Son of Man, but later come around to realize, no, 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 he is Messiah. Father, forgive me, I didn't know. That will be forgiven. But Jesus says, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable now and in the age to come. You cannot be forgiven of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, why is that? What does that mean? We, we like to think so black and white when it comes to law. We don't understand what's underneath, what's behind it. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here is, is talking about the sin that is the absolute rejection of the only one who can save you. It's, it's, it's a heart that is so hard, so cold, so dead that it will not repent. This is the latter half of the tribulation. Revelation 6 or 7 through 19. The latter half of the tribulation where you get to a point in Revelation chapter 9 where it says, and they did not repent. They would not repent. And from that point on, no one repents. They, they pass the point of no repentance. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It comes to a point where, where there's rejection of the very gift of salvation itself. So we're not so, talking about someone who says God's name in vain, blasphemy the Holy Spirit. Not that I would approve saying God's name in vain, but we're talking about a heart that has gone cold and hard against God and says, I do not believe, nor will I follow. Every other sin, every other sin of humanity was paid for by Jesus' blood at Calvary. The only one that remains is the one that rejects the gift of salvation because it rejects the spirit of God. And listen to this, Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, in him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him, that is in Jesus, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That is the Holy Spirit is our seal, is our assurance. But if you reject the spirit of God, you reject the very seal of your salvation. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the, the most simple way I can put it is it's slapping away the hand that saves. It's just slapping away the hand that saves. And so the Lord now rains down judgment. And in so doing, listen, the Amorite heart is revealed. As God is throwing the hailstones, now we can see vividly what was so bad that God would cause the complete annihilation of a people blasphemy and a complete and total rejection of the one true God. And so he begins to stone them. The thing that, that really ought to stir us is the day is coming. As I just said, when the Christ rejecting world is going to face the same hailstone judgment of blasphemy. 
And we'll see that in the Joshua prophecy study later on as well. Now, something equally supernatural takes place here that, that had never, ever happened before, nor has it ever happened since. Picking up in verse 12, then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, this is Joshua speaking, O sun, stand still at Gibeon. O moon, in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Yashar? Well, I don't know. I've never seen the book of Yashar. The truth is the book of Yashar was, was, it's mentioned in one other place, probably a history book. Doesn't mean it was itself wrong, but not included in scripture because it's not, it's not divinely inspired. But it's a book of history. And so Joshua in writing this says, it's written in the book of Yashar too. So you can check your facts outside of the Bible if you want to. He goes on and says, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Verse 14, there was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel and then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. I love this story. Some refuse to accept it. And it's one of the many in the Bible where the critics will try to explain it away you know, they'll say it's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. And they'll say, you know, perhaps it was something like, it's climate crisis, that's what it is. It is a climate crisis that caused this weird effect to happen. Some refuse that it happened at all. They say this is just euphemistic for a long day of war. You know, they'll say it's like the Beatles' hard day's night. It just doesn't really, you know, it just a long, just felt like a long day. But the Bible's absolutely clear that the sun stood still, that Joshua prayed for it to stand still, that it stood still, and then even goes so far as to say for about a whole day. It didn't move for a whole day. So the only way to take this is something has to explain this or just take it at face value, which is what I would recommend. But some say, well, perhaps it just got really cloudy that day. Or maybe it was an eclipse They'll say, well, the sun stood still over Gabeon and the moon over the valley of Aijalon. By the way, don't let that confuse you because there are plenty of days when there are sunny days in the Northwest, which we've had a lot lately, where you can see the moon and the sky at the same time. I love that. When that happens, I feel like I'm on Tatooine or something. So this whole thing, this, this pattern stopped. The movement of the earth around the sun, the moon around the earth, everything just stopped for an entire day. Some say perhaps it was multiple volcanic eruptions and the ash went up into the sky and dimmed the sky for a long period of time so they couldn't tell if it was day or night. I'm not gonna waste your time debating all the natural explanations because they are all stupid. But this was literally supernatural. Literally supernatural. Now, this is really cool. Do we have evidence of such a day? Is there anything that we can point to and say, well, yeah, I mean, people talked about a day like this. Stuff has been written down about a day like this, even outside of the Bible. In the East, we'll start there, Egyptian hieroglyphics tell of two days rolled into one long day. In fact, 
the Greek historian Herodotus wrote about this on a trek to Egypt that he made. He met with some Egyptian priests who opened up an ancient manuscript and read to him where it talked about this two days rolled into one. That's interesting. That's in Egypt. If you go further east to China, the Chinese, they have writings, they have historical record of such a day during the reign of Yao, the seventh emperor, in the Chinese year 2554. By the way, 2554 in China was the same year that Joshua and the Israelites were making the campaign into Israel. And the Chinese say there was a, a day that was extended like two, a long day where the sun didn't move. So that's in the east, and there are many, many more. I'm not going to go into right now. Many more you could look up and think about, but travel west. What about in the west? You come to North America, and North American cultures, like the Ojibwe Indians, told of a long night without any light. Missionary Paul Lejeune wrote that the Wyandotte tribe also spoke of a long night as if it were two nights. The Omaha tribe had a tale of the sun, and, and in their fictional tale, they told of the sun being trapped by a crafty rabbit just before sunrise so it couldn't come up, and thus doubling the length of the night. Well, that's a fable, Rick. Yeah, but why? We tell fables to try and explain the unexplainable. We come up with tales to try and explain something that we don't know how else to explain the Bungie tribe, I kid you not, they're called the Bungie tribe. They're from Lake Winnipeg area in Canada. The Bungie tribe, they jump in <laughs> with their story of a lingering night. So you have, interesting, you have in the East, this long extended day told of in ancient manuscripts and literature and, and even tales. And then in the West, this very, very long night heads south from North America, and you find that the Mayans and the Aztecs of Central and South America also have legends of a long, doubly extended night. Well, that tells you something, doesn't it? Why do so many different cultures, literally on different continents, tell similar tales in the same way that so many cultures on different continents have stories of a global flood. Why is it a long day in the east, but a long night in the west? Well, wouldn't it be? I mean, when it's daylight in Israel, it's nighttime here. So if you're going to have an extended day in the east, you better be sure there's an extended night in the west or the whole story is blown. Well, this is exactly what all the fables and stories and tales and ancient writings describe. What's further interesting to me, and again, this is all, all of these stories fall around the same time period, right around the same time in history. Scientists at the University of Maryland were using computer models to try and, and go forward with the, the rotations of of the earth around the sun and the moon and, and all of these things. And using their computer models, at the same time, they began to look back. So they're looking forward and they're looking back. And they found an unexplainable 23 hours and 20 minutes missing in time. Where'd it go? No one knows. No one can explain. Where'd this 23 hours and 20 minutes go? And I find it fascinating because, again, the scripture is so perfect. In verse 13, it says that the sun did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. 
What do you mean, like 23 hours and 20 minutes? Exactly. <laughs> Not precisely a whole day, but about a near, almost a whole day, and that's exactly what the computer models describe and cannot figure out. For all the hints and clues and allusions in ancient lore and in modern computer models, we have to deal with the basic fact that for all of that, the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. What are you going to do with that? Well, those two verses, I think I'm just going to remove because I can't believe that supernatural event. When are you going to stop? And, and why stop there? If you're going to start removing the supernatural from the scriptures, you might as well close the book and put it away because you will never get through it. This is truth, my friends. The Bible tells me so. Psalm 19 says the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then he continues saying, the law of the Lord is perfect. This word is perfect. By the way, you ever feel like you don't have enough time to get everything done in one day? Wouldn't it be nice, just like Joshua, to say, Lord, two hours. I just need two extra hours of sunlight. Or, Lord, can you just make the sun stand still for a moment? Listen, all you need to do to lengthen your day is speak to the sun, S-O-N. Speak to the sun. Not because he's going to cause the sun to stop but I believe he'll give you the time you need. And if the sun goes down and I'm not yet finished with what I need to get done, when I speak to the sun, I hear him say, Rick, let today's trouble be enough for today. As I'm thinking about tomorrow and next week and the week after that and wondering how in the world am I gonna finish everything I've got to finish before Christmas, Jesus says, let's take it one day at a time. And how do I know to do that? Because I, I speak to the sun. I talk to him. Now, according to verse 14, it says this is the only time the Lord listened to the voice of a man. But don't misunderstand that. It's the only time he listened to the voice of a man to make the sun stand still. Truth is, the Lord listens to the voice of a man, of a woman, all the time. Now, after this, there is a comparable incident, not as long, not an entire day, but he did cause the sun's shadow to backtrack 10 steps for Hezekiah. But other than that, and this holding of the sun, he never listened to the voice of, of a man to hold the sun at all in all history. But God does say, Psalm 50, verse 11, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. Proverbs 3, verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So while your day might not go from 28 hours or 24 hours to 24 plus 23 hours and 20 minutes, thank you, right around there. 
Though your day may not lengthen, your days will be for the accomplishment of God's will in your life. He'll get it done. He'll get it done. Verse 16. Now these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Machedah. It was told Joshua saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So it came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed and the survivors remained of them, who remained of them had entered the fortified cities, that all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machedah in peace. No one uttered a word against the sons of Israel. Oh, I love that verse. Literally, it's no one sharpened his tongue against the Israelites. No one sharpened his tongue, or we might even say forked his tongue, <laughs> like the devil would do. As the sun was stilled in the sky, so the apparent barbs and attacks and jabs and trash talk of the enemy ceased. You put it this way, the voice of the enemy was silenced. We use that phrase from time to time. When we're praying and when we're dealing with spiritual warfare, will pray that God would silence the voice of the enemy. I don't want to hear the voice of the enemy. I want to hear the voice of the Spirit. I want to clearly hear the voice of truth. I don't need all those whisperings in my head that make me uncertain in my faith. Silence the voice of the enemy, Lord. You want to silence the voice of the enemy? Here's a simple way to do it. Speak to the Son. Speak to the Son. You call out the name of Jesus. Don't speak to the enemy. Don't think yourself tough enough to go up against the enemy. Don't call him out. You speak to Jesus. Michael did that in Jude's little letter. He did not even raise a railing comment against the enemy, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This is Michael the archangel. Now, if you think yourself more powerful than Michael the archangel, even so, speak to the son. Take it to Jesus. And then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought these five kings out to him from the cave, the, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmut, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And they brought these kings out to Joshua. Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and they put their feet on their necks. And then Joshua said to them, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees and they hung on the trees until evening. It came about at sunset that Joshua gave a command and they took them down from the trees and they threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and put, a lar and put large stones over the mouth of the cave. To this very day, Joshua says, their dead bodies are still in that cave. Well, the stone was rolled away and Jesus did not remain three days. He's out. These kings were taken down. And it's an interesting contrast 
but no one rolled those stones away. Why'd they hide in a cave? We have another picture here. I'll go ahead and just give you this one. The Amorites and these Amorite kings who are now hiding, fearful in this cave. Why are they hiding in the cave? Because the Amorites worship the sun and the moon. They were worshipers of the sun god and the moon god, and Yahweh crushed both the sun and the moon, held them fast. There was no power in the skies above to do anything that the Amorites needed done. God held them fast, and the slaughter came upon them. And so Yahweh won that war both against their supposed gods but against them, and so now they're terrorized and they're hiding in the cave, and it's ironically the same response. These five kings as the kings of the earth as they realize the wrath of the lamb has come. Revelation chapter six, verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath. Their wrath, that is God's wrath and the wrath of the lamb has come and who is able to stand. So there is a moment where those who blaspheme, where those who reject God, where those who want nothing to do with God recognize who they have rejected. This is not repentance. This is hiding out. This is caving in. It's not repentance, however. And so they're in this cave. Listen, I got to say this, and I say this over and over, and, and I repeat it purposefully. There are those in the church who think that the church will go through at least some of the tribulation. And I could not disagree more, and don't cave in. Don't cave in. When you hear, well, yeah, but, yeah, but, but what, if, what if things start to take a turn? What if we recognize, based on Scripture, that we're in the tribulation, and there was no rapture, and, and the whole thing, and we were wrong? First of all, we're not going to. What if we do? Don't cave in. Just take God at his word. Just trust him for what he says. What does he say? 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the wrath was thrown onto, poured onto the shoulders of Jesus at the cross. That's the wrath that was for us that Jesus took. The wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world is not for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have tribulations, little t. It doesn't mean we won't have persecutions. It doesn't mean the Christians, multiple millions, multiplied millions over the centuries have been persecuted unto death, martyred for their faith. Yes, that has all happened, but that's not the tribulation. That is not the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, even as these kings hiding in the cave say, the wrath of the lamb, the great day of the wrath has come. They recognize that as God's wrath. We were not destined for God's wrath. Now, verse 28 picks up and gives a summary for us of the southern wars. Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it with its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. So now this is king number six. And then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. 
And the Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel, and he struck it and every person who was in it uh, with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor in it. Thus he did to its king, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish, and they camped by it, and they fought against it. The Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel, and he captured it. Note this, on the second day. So this is a day-by-day campaign now that's happening. The slaughter of the five kings happened, and, and we're told they went back to Gilgal, but now they've headed out again, and you're gonna see these wars take place all together in four to five days. As on the second day, Lachish is captured then on the, uh, with the edge of the sword, verse 33, then Horam, king of Gezer, so he's an old guy, came up to Lachish, <laughs> and Joshua defeated him and his people until he left no survivor. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Lachish to Eglon, and they camped by it, and they fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he utterly destroyed that day every person who was in it according to all that he had done to Lachish. That's another day. Now here's a, th- a-, a third day, or fourth day. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, or Hebron, and they fought against it. They captured it, they struck it, and its king, and all its cities, and all the persons who were in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor, according to all that he had done to Eglon, and he utterly destroyed it, and every person who was in it. And then Joshua and all Israel, so we're on what, a fifth day now? All Israel with him returned to Debir, for they fought against it. He captured it, and its king, and all its cities, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed every person in it. He left no survivor, just as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debir and its king, as he, also, as he had also done to Libna and its king. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, the Negev, that's the southern desert area of Israel, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings, he left no survivor. But he utterly destroyed all all who breathed, note this, just as the Lord, the God of Israel had commanded, Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, all the country of Goshen, this is not Egypt's Goshen, this is a Goshen in Israel, even as far as Gibeon. And all of that, with the exception of the first day, the long day, you've got the long day, and then you have five days where day after day after day after day after day, five days in one week, all of these are done. A massive route following the long day. You see how much God can take care of all at once? If you look at verse 42, Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time. Why? Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel, so Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. The natural world is no match for the supernatural hand of God. Another note on all this destruction and carnage. The hand of God that went before Joshua and empowered Joshua and the Israelites to wipe out all of now the mid and southern regions of the land of Canaan, all the Amorites and Canaanites and Hivites and Jebusites that he wiped out, that same hand is the hand that would one day take the nails and be drilled into a cross, proving the love of God. Now, someone can look at the contrast of these two things, the hand of God for destruction and the hand of God for salvation, and they can say, love? 
in all this destruction and carnage, how can you say love? It's not just destruction and carnage. It is, my friends, righteous judgment. Righteous judgment. And it is the same righteous judgment of God that will again rain down but this time on the entire earth, as Jesus said, Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So back to my comment about the rapture a minute ago and and pre-tribulation theology and, and just taking the Bible literally. What if you're wrong, Rick? What if you're wrong about the rapture and wrong about the tribulation and wrong about all of this? Then I will go to my grave taking God at his word. Now, I would rather stand before God and say, I just took it literally. I didn't know where to make it allegorical. So in my simple-mindedness, I just said, Lord, what your word says is what I believed. And that I would stand on and that I will stand on. Did you catch that six times in this chapter, six being the number of man, six times Joshua writes that they did this with the edge of the sword. See, that's the only way I know how to fight, with the edge of the sword. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, but don't take my word for it. Take his. Take his word for it. This same God who loves so much must judge, absolutely has to judge. Isn't it ironic that that those who, who would say God is so unjust in all of these wars, they would turn around and wonder how Hitler got away with what he got away with. Why didn't God stop Hitler? Or or they would say today, where's your God when Putin is is raining down fire on Kiev? Where's God in that? Where's God when when women are being raped and when children are starving? Where's your God in, in all this? Well, the same God who avenged atrocities that were carried out among the Amorites. The same God who showed up and did judge. Where is he? He's patient. He is patient. He's waiting. He loves so much. And it's said that his love, that he will remain patient because of his love until his justice supersedes his mercy. Until the point where he has to act justly. Now, this same Bible who tells you and tells me that he is a God of love tells you and me he is a God of absolute justice. And all of this that's taking place in Canaan at this time is avenging the awful atrocities that were done by those people. In the same way that when the tribulation falls on this planet, there will be an avenging of the atrocities that even currently are taking place in front of us. Chapter 11, then it came about when Yabin, the king of Hatzor, heard it, that he sent to Jobab, or Yobab, the king of Madon. I love some of these names. Can you imagine having a name like Yobab? Yo-yo, Yobab, king of Madon, the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshaf. And to the kings who are of the north in the hill country and in the Arabah, south of Kinnerot, 
and the lowland and on the heights of Dor on the west. And he says, to the Canaanite on the east and the west and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Parasite and the Jebusite in the hill country and the Hivite in the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpeh, they came out and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, remember that phrase, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. We're talking about the northern region now. And chapter 11 is gonna now shift direction. Chapter 10 gave us all of the final conquest of the mid and the south. So now Jericho, I, and then all the countries to the south and the mid of Jerusalem. Brilliant warfare strategy. Joshua cuts across the middle, takes the entire south, and now they're heading north. And the kings of the north have heard about all of this, and they are aware of this conquering mass that is moving in their direction. And so they gather here at the waters of Merom, and this whole thing is on a plottable map. These, these kings and these countries and, and where they were located, all up in the north. And there are some keys here for us knowing it's up in the north. It says at the foot of Hermon in verse three, Mount Hermon is the largest mountain in Israel. By the way, if anybody wonders if Joseph and Mary ever had a white Christmas, well, there was snow there's always snow on Hermon, and we've seen snow in Jerusalem, so it's entirely possible. But Mount Hermon is up in the north. We know this is speaking now of northern territory, and the other key word here in verse two is Kinnerot. You might look at it and say, Chinnereth? Well, that would be our anglicized way of saying it. In Hebrew, it's Kinnerot. Kinnerot, which means harps. But notice that, it's plural. The Jewish people today, the Israelis will call it Lake Kinneret. Lake Kinneret means harp, and it's the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, because if you look at it, if you were to fly over it, or even look on your Bible map, which I encourage you to do, look in the back of your Bible, the Bible map, and you'll see there's the Sea of Galilee, and it's like a harp. Because it's harp-shaped, they call it Kinneret, harp. But this says Kinnerot, and the ot in Hebrew, this makes it plural, so it's literally harps, south of harps in the lowland and the heights of Dor on the west, south of harps. So they're talking about the lower Galilee region south of two seas. Two seas, not just one, because there used to be two. Now there's simply the Sea of Galilee, but you could say there were the Seas of Galilee Two harp-shaped seas, one large one, the Sea of Galilee, and then if you look on your Bible map, follow the Jordan River straight up from that little, from that heart-shaped Sea of Galilee, harp-shaped, follow it up, and you'll see another little body of water that is harp-shaped as well. That's not there anymore. That's the waters of Marom that's talked about right here where they camped in verse five. So that's where they were encamped, up by the waters of Marom, which was also harp-shaped, so you had Kinnerot, the harp-shaped lakes, the Sea of Galilee and the waters of Merom. Joshua's victories in the middle and the south of the land have literally gone viral. So everybody knows, everybody's talking about him, and these northern kings are shaking. So they gather in mass, and it's quite a mass. Josephus tells us. So Josephus, the historian, I remember this is a first century historian. So he's reporting this 1,400 years later. So we don't know how exactly accurate it is, but he speculated that they amassed, these northern kings in chapter 11, 300,000 infantry, 10,000 cavalry, 
and 20,000 charioteers. This is a massive army. This is now the biggest army that they have faced at all. Big numbers. Big numbers here. Genesis twenty-two seventeen. Do you remember what the Lord said? Because right here, Joshua writes that they came out as many people as the sand that is on the seashore. What did God tell Abraham? Genesis twenty-two seventeen. I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. So even if the, the number of this army was as the sand on the seashore, well, the people of Abraham were sand of the seashore and the stars in heaven. Twice as many. Um, some scientists have actually kind of guesstimated, and, and the query is out there, wouldn't it be amazing if the number of the grains of sand on earth equaled the number of the stars in the heavens? That's been thought. And because the Bible states it this way, it's interesting. And furthermore, the sands of the seashore, Abraham, I'm gonna, your people will number that many. And the stars in the heavens, the sand perhaps could speak of Abram's physical offspring, the Jewish people. Stars could indicate Abram's spiritual offspring, those who share his faith. Daniel 12, verse three says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. As Christians, we're called to shine like stars in the universe, rightly holding out the word of life, right? So perhaps there's something there. Galatians chapter three, verse 29 says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And Jesus said in John 8, 39, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. What deeds were those? Belief. Trust in the Lord. He believed God for his promises. He took God at his word. You know, Abram, with, with no proof, just the promise of God, he took hold of the promise, he held on to the promises yet to come by faith. He trusted even with his dying breath, this is gonna happen. He bought that cave in Machpelah, you remember that? Bought the cave in Machpelah, why? So that when he resurrects, he can step right out into his inheritance. I love that about Abraham. Do the deeds of Abraham, Jesus said. Paul says in Ephesians 6.16, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. But note this, and we're gonna continue on. Our faith is not in numbers. Our faith is never in numbers. The enemy's big on numbers. Oh, Satan loves to do numbers. In fact, the image of the sands of the seashore, this is often used negatively in the scripture of the enemy and of his work, at least in a physical sense. We see this in the Bible, Judges 7, verse 12. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's what Gideon saw when God had whittled down his army to 300 men, and he's looking at massive people amassed like the sand on the seashore. Gideon learned very quickly, victory with God has nothing to do with numbers. Nothing. 1 Samuel 13, verse five says, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and the people were like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. You know what happened then? 
That is Israel's enemy, the Philistines, lined up against Israel. And King Saul, he ran to a place called Gibeon. And he feared so much that he offered sacrifice. Actually, no, it was Gilgal, wasn't it? It was one of the ones with G's. Gilgal or Gibeon, I'm not remembering. Hmm? It was Gilgal. He went to Gilgal and waited for Samuel, and he was so terrified of what was happening and the massive numbers that he faced that he offered sacrifices before Samuel could get there and lost his kingdom because he saw numbers. Revelation 13.1 tells us that the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and there's a picture of the sea of humanity there. Revelation 20, verse seven says, when the thousand years are completed, that is at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore, but it's over in a heartbeat. Our faith is not in numbers. Remember what Jesus said, one of the most simple and sweetest verses in the Bible. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 18, verse 19. And then he says, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there, in their midst. Which is why when we gather, even on a Wednesday, how remarkable it is to know that as we're all seated here in this sanctuary, Jesus is here right here in our midst. And don't forget, John wrote in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Our faith is not in numbers. By the way, our faith is not in horses. Verse six, the Lord then said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as Great Zidon and Mizrapothmaim on the valley of Mizpah to the east, and they struck them until no survivor was left to them. Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, I pulled a hamstring several times playing basketball in high school, and it is not fun. To hamstring the horse lovers, pay attention. Deb, listen up. <laughs> I know it's animals, right? I mean, it's one thing, the people. You know, it's another thing, the orcs. But the animals, the animals, they, they, these horses were hamstrung. There's a reason for this. And it's a very divine reason. And that is that horses <laughs> were the Humvees of the day. And chariots were the tanks. And these were the implements of greater warfare, human ingenuity and innovation and power for warfare. The horses were hamstrung and the chariots were burned to never be used in war again. God is telling Joshua, because think about it. Lord, if we just take out the horseback riders and kill all the charioteers, what great armaments would we have? Do you notice in Paul's list of spiritual defense and weapons of our warfare? No chariots or horses are listed. No tanks or Humvees. No implements of human ingenuity. In fact, it's very simple. We know that the first king, that all the kings of Israel were commanded back in Deuteronomy 17, 
He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never turn that way again. Now, for the horse's sake, hamstringing the horse would simply incapacitate it to charge in war. He could still sit out in the pasture and chew the, the grass and have a lovely afternoon. God didn't say, kill the horses. He said, keep them from fighting. Take away the ability for them to be used in warfare and burn the chariots because I don't want you on them. I don't want you riding. I don't want you in the chariots. That is not how we fight. I think it's so fascinating. How does Joshua and the children of Israel fight? On their feet. They marched up to the north. And as these horses and chariots were raging toward them, they took them out. Because the hand of God was with them. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God, Psalm 20, verse 7. So when it comes to horses, just say nay. <laughs> some boast in horses. And think about this, because we have this same threat before us today. Some boast in technology and innovation and human efficiency and modern methodologies and strategies. Well, if we do this, we can get the job done better. And I struggle with this. I need you to know, I struggle with the fact that we're even on YouTube. I'm glad that we are, for those of you at home. But, but it's, it's that modern technology, and every time we come across some way to, to utilize tech and, and, and all this stuff that we have, I, I pause and I go, Lord, is that horses? You know, Father, are, are those chariots? Because it's really interesting, in our defense of modern warfare, Ephesians 6.15 basically says, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're still called to walk the message out. We're still called to hearts that are simple before the Lord and trust him and his supernatural power to do what we can't do ourselves. We don't trust in horses. Think about how Jesus came into the world. He came at a time when there was no internet, there, there was no social media. I mean, think about how he could have gotten the gospel out if he had just waited, you know, to the last five years. It'd be everywhere. He'd go viral instantly. He would have his own Instagram page and he'd be a YouTuber. He'd be an influencer like nobody else. But when did Jesus come? There was none of that. How did Jesus get around? He walked. How did he spread the gospel? He spoke. And yet Jesus Christ had the greatest historical impact of hum any human being who has ever lived on the face of the earth. Among believers and non-believers alike, nobody has had the impact or influence of Jesus Christ in three years of ministry in a little out-of-the-way place, the Galilee of Judea. Unbelievable. That's God's way. And God is glorified in that. So faith is not in horses. Faith is not in numbers. Verse 10 and then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor and struck its king with the sword, and for Hatzor was formerly with the head of all these kingdoms. And they struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, there it is again, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hatzor with fire. 
Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. He is not doing this out of bloodthirstiness. He is doing this by command of the Lord. This is divine punishment and retribution. However, Israel did not burn any of the cities that stood on their mounds, except for Hatzor alone, which Joshua burned. By the way, you know what? Go back to something, because I totally missed this. I just realized this. Why did Joshua have his generals come and put their feet on the necks of the kings? Back there in chapter 10, you remember that? What did you say, Deb? So they wouldn't move. Well, that's, that's a literal answer. Thank you, yeah. Why would Joshua do such a thing? It almost feels like he's rubbing their noses in it, right? No, no, no. Joshua is making an example and saying, put your feet on their necks. And then he says this, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. And the point is simply this. My, my grandson, Silas, does not like dogs. He's like, hands off. He's, still, he's small, so he's still kind of afraid of dogs. And so what we have to do is we have to hold the dog. And when we got Suki last year, Silas did not want anything to do with Suki. And Suki, all she wanted to do was pummel Silas. So we had to hold her and bring Silas near. And as we held her, I put my foot on her neck. No, I didn't. But <laughs> I had to hold her and say, see, Silas, it's okay. You can pet her. And you know, he put his hand out and put it on his neck. She licked his hand and he laughed. And, and, and it was an example to him. This is going to be okay. You've got this. And that's what Joshua was doing back there. So just, I just remembered, I wanted to tell you all that. It's not Joshua being a jerk. It's Joshua saying, we have this. The necks of these kings, we have this. God will take care of us. So then now, continuing on, uh, where were we at? Verse... 13, is that right? However, Israel did not burn any of the cities that stood on their mounds except Hatzor alone, yeah, and, and Joshua burned that. So he left many of the cities, because why? Because the children of Israel will be able to move into them and then use them and, and live there instead of just burning everything. But he burned Hatzor in the north as an example to all the enemies and to all the people of the Lord of their victory and of their conquest. All the spoil, verse 14, of these cities and the cattle and the sons of Israel, they took them as plunder, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, so Joshua did. And note this, he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses, nothing undone. Faith leaves nothing undone. It leaves nothing undone. Let me put it simply, and I'm gonna talk about this more on Sunday, but if you are still breathing on the earth, you ain't done. You ain't done, Deb, sorry to tell you. You know, you ain't done, Hank. You're still breathing on the earth, Les. You ain't done, Jake. You're wearing your years, bro, but you ain't done. Hey, if we're still here, we're not done. How do I know when I'm done? When you're there. Then you're done. Faith leaves nothing undone. Continue forward. Jesus said, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
You hang on, you go forward, you continue to believe. Now, we get a summary of, of all this beginning in verse 16. Thus Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all that land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak that rises towards Seir, and this is all down in the south, even as far as Baal Gad to the valley of Lebanon, that'd be up in the north at the foot of Mount Hermon, and he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. So, so what we know is that there were the big battles. And in fact, I can tell you, the large battles, the taking down of the major nations took about six to seven years. That's a long war. That's a long time that they were at war in the land and fighting in the land, six to seven years. Now, there were certain campaigns, as we saw, that happened in a single long day or took place day after day in five days in less than a week. But the battling continued on and would roll on for a long time. Joshua was faithful, leaving nothing undone. Verse 19 tells us there was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gabeon, they took them all in battle. That's telling. So what was the heart of, the, of all the ites in the land? They did not want to make peace. They wanted to fight. They were still in their state of abject rebellion. Verse 20, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. We've been over this, but I'll ask again, why did the Lord harden their hearts? Because their hearts were hard. That's why the Lord hardens hearts. We see this with Pharaoh when he released the people, delivered them out of Egypt. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. But you realize that half of the time, the first half of the times that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, he hardened his heart. And then the latter half during the plagues, God hardened his heart because his heart was already hard. God is not gonna harden a soft heart. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not put out. He's not gonna harden a soft heart, an open heart, but a heart that is rock hard against him, he will, he will honor the hardness. Why do the same people who reject the Old Testament God and call him unmerciful, look around the world, as I said earlier, and ask the question, where is God when Putin does what he does? Where is God when he does these things? Why does he allow the atrocities? And I say to you again tonight, he won't. Canaan had 400 years to repent, and God stepped in to stop the atrocities. Humanity has had 2,000 years in this age of grace. It is the only thing that explains God holding back his judgment on this very sick world. It's his grace. And God is not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. And so he is holding back that wrath and that judgment, but it will be unleashed and Jesus will soon step in. Romans 10 verse eight. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So here's the deal with the hard heart. Faith softens the heart. And faith maintains a soft heart. So just encouragement, brothers and sisters, when you feel like your heart's getting a little hard against people or against God's will in your life, 
when you feel like your back is getting stiffened when he asks you to do something or step out, trust him. It will soften your heart. Faith softens a hard heart. Paul prays in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So if you want your heart to soften, speak to the son. Verse 21. And then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country. These were giants. These were the, the, um, the forefathers of, of one that you know called Goliath. Cut off the Anakim from the hill country from Hebron and from Debir and Anab and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza and in Gath and in Ashdod. These were Philistine cities. Some remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus, the land had rest from war. Thus, the land had rest from war. Faith rests. Faith always rests. Even when there's more to do, faith rests. With this final verse, now all the major conquests of the land are over. But note that last phrase. We talked about it a bit earlier today. Looking at this and thinking about it, thus the land had rest from war. The land had rest from war. There's something unique about God's relationship with this land that he has chosen as his land out of all the earth. He's chosen Israel for his own. And there are many reasons, I think, perhaps for that but the land had rest from war. I remind you the promised land is not heaven. It's a picture of the victorious Christian life. And it is a life in which the war has been fought and won. The conquest is over. It was over at Calvary as our Yehoshua, our Joshua Jesus fought and died and secured our inheritance by faith. But hold that thought and let's rip through chapter 12. Ready? Now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated, whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the, Mount, from the valley of Arnon as far as Mount Hermon and all the Arabah to the east. And someone might say to me, and my, my wife has before, why are you intent on reading every single word? Why not just say chapter 12 is about the kings in the land defeated by Israel and be done with it? <laughs> All I can tell you is I think there is something to reading and speaking every word in Scripture. And so that's, that's why we do this. Verse two, here we go. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and ruled from Eror, which was on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, both the middle of the valley and half of Gilead, even as far as the brook Yabok, and the border of the sons of Ammon. So the Ammonites, that's northern Jordan today. The Arabah, as far as the Sea of Kinnerot, there's the Sea of Galilee, or the seas, the big and the little one, toward the east, and as far as the Sea of the Arabah, even the Salt Sea, we call it the Dead Sea, eastward toward Bet Yeshimot, and on the south at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, that's the mount that Moses died on, and the territory of Ug, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim who lived at Ashtarot and at Edrai, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salachah and all Bashan as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Meachathites, half of Gilead, as far as the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. 
Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the sons of Israel defeated them. Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh as a possession. That's pre-entrance into the promised land. Now, verse 7, these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the sons of Israel defeated beyond the Jordan toward the west from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Halak which rises towards Seir. Joshua gave it to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, on the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Negev, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, and the flashlights and megabytes, and you know all the rest. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Yarmut, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Getzer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Abdullam, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Afek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazor, one. This could be a song. The king of Shemron, Meron, one. The king of Akshaf, one. The king of Teanach, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jachnaim in Carmel, one. The king of Dor on the heights of Dor, one. The king of Goyim in Gilgal, one. The king of Terza, one. In all, 31 kings. When Joshua wrote that list, it would have been like a who's who in Canaan's land. By the book, who's who in Canaan. For us today, it's really more of a who cares? <laughs> who gives a rip? It's interesting is for all those names, most of those names you've never heard. Most of those names you wouldn't remember if we had a test next week. And yet we remember names like Joshua, don't we? We remember Abraham and Sarah. We remember Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. We remember Rahav. We remember Ruth and David. And, and we remember John and Peter in fact, we remember Peter, Paul, and Mary, all three together. <laughs> because they all had to do with the name above all names, Jesus. We always tend to remember those who had something to do with Jesus. Now, back in verse 23 of chapter 11, it said, thus the land had rest from war. And again, there's an interesting dynamic here to the very land itself finally having rest the Bible says in Romans chapter eight that all earth groans in expectation of the revelation of the, of the sons of God. There is something to the earth, and, and, and I'm not gonna get weird on you, but there is just something to the earth created by God that is groaning and longing for the final revelation, for Jesus to rule and reign, for him to restore this earth to its proper condition. And there's a unique dynamic between rest and and possession, and I'm gonna end with this. Faith rests to possess. Faith rests to possess. This is how it works, and I'm spending a lifetime trying to understand this, and many of you as well. Because if you look at chapter 13, verse one, it says Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. <laughs> And very much of the land remains to be possessed. Wait a minute. I thought the land rested. I thought the wars were over. I thought they were done. No, 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 no. The major nations are now taken care of. 
they are now taken out. There are still little pockets and there are still rebels and there are still those who stand against Joshua and the people of Israel and there's still land that needs to be owned by the people. Possession needs to be taken. They need to start the planting and they need to start spreading out their flocks and herds and they need to take ownership of the promises before them. The land was at rest, but it was not yet possessed. And that is the amazing dichotomy of the victorious Christian life. That if we're doing this God's way, we are at rest while we seek to possess. Now we get that typically backwards. We seek to possess so that we can get to the rest. But God says, no, I want you to rest and therefore possess. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Isaiah 30, verse 15. Rest to possess. Rest to possess. Don't strive. Cease striving and know that I am God, he says. Rest to possess. Philippians chapter three, Paul paints this perfectly. Gives us, I think, just a great understanding of this. He says in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So wait a minute, Paul, you're saved, but he says, I haven't become perfect, which is teteleomai, from the word tetelestai. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. Paul said, I'm, I'm not finished. But listen, he goes on and says, brethren, I, 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 I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, therefore let us, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. You just said you weren't perfect. And now you're saying let as many as us, of us who are perfect have this attitude. And then he goes on to say, I think tongue in cheek, and if, anything, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. I have not become perfect to teleomai, he says. But let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, teleoloi, which, again, it's all the same word. So I, I'm not perfect, but I am perfect. What does this mean? I'm perfect, and I am being perfected. I am laid hold of by Christ and I am laying hold of his promises. I am at rest, and this is key. I am at rest while taking possession of all the promises of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's how we take hold of it. We enter his rest. Your homework, read Ephesians 4, or not Hebrews 4. Read Hebrews chapter 4 on down to about verse 11. Read it before you go to bed tonight because Joshua brought them to the land. But then David later says, they haven't entered the rest yet. Enter his rest. And by being diligent, the Hebrew pastor says, to enter that rest, we begin to possess. Faith rests to possess. Got it? Just not. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. Thank you for covering so much ground. It's been a long night here. I'm sure it was a long day in Israel, Lord. <laughs> but I, I thank you for your word to us. I thank you for laying this all out for us and showing us the, the, the determination and diligence of Joshua to, to do every single thing you called him to do, to follow through on everything. Lord, we're halfway through the book. So there's obviously more here. And I pray that you would prepare us for that. But for now, Lord, tonight, help us to understand what it means to rest, to possess. Give us, Lord, that ability, which I believe comes by the divine power of your Holy Spirit, that we can rest and not strive to take possession of that which you, Lord Jesus, already laid hold of for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.